Uh, I want to read our passage this morning. It comes from the Gospel of Matthew. This is a little bit later. We've been doing the, the Sermon on the Mount. We're kind of done with the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to move to later in the story of Christ here. This is Matthew 17. Here now the reading of God's Word. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and his brother John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun. And his clothes became bright as light. Suddenly there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him, meaning Jesus. Then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will set up three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And while he was still standing, suddenly a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, the beloved. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell to the ground and were overcome by fear. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Get up and do not be afraid. And when they raised their eyes, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. And they were coming down the mountain. Jesus ordered them, tell no one about the vision until after the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. Let's pray over the preaching of God's word. Holy and gracious God, we ask that you be in our presence and our midst this morning as we know that you are. God, may your word be a lamp unto our feet and a light to our path. May it speak to us, may it speak through us for the establishment of your kingdom on this earth. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, and in your sight alone. You are our rock, God. You are our redeemer. We praise you. We love you. We give you all of the glory. We pray this in your holy name. Amen. Amen. This story, the transfiguration, is one a lot of pastors skip over, to be honest with you, because it's a little weird. It's a little weird. Uh, It gives you the visual of Jesus being a ghost. Can we say that? His faces light up, his clothes become white, and then these two guys who were gone are suddenly there, Moses and Elijah. These are rock stars of the faith, okay? Moses and Elijah, they are rock stars of the faith, but they appear with him, and if I'm Peter, and I'm James, and I'm John, I'm starting to get a little worried, starting to get a little freaked out. And it's okay for us to just say that, okay? Because the transfiguration is a strange story. What it's not okay for us to do is say, well, transfiguration is weird, let's pass over it. I've said that many times in the scriptures. When the scripture challenges you, you just dive in further, amen? Okay, so, so that's what happens. But we have Elijah and Moses and Jesus. What happens in this moment, just overarching, is that the glory of God which is not something in the Methodist church, that's not a term we use a whole lot, but the glory of God is on display. I mean, I cannot think, other than the resurrection itself, I cannot think of another time in Scripture where the glory of God would have been so evident. What do I mean by the glory of God? I mean that the story of Jesus, the story of God within our lives and within the Scriptures has been made clear. Because Moses is there. Moses is the one who rescued God's people out of slavery. That is a story of deliverance that still preaches today. Elijah is there, right? 
Elijah is a prophet. He's provided direction. He's defended the goodness and the holiness of God. He's the one who trains up the next generation, if you know the story of Elijah and Elisha. Jesus is telling us, or God's telling us something through that right there. And then there is Jesus, the Son of God, as he would be resurrected, telling the story of not him being on the earth right now, but the future where all things have been made new and that he has come to rescue the entire world. Do you see how the story of God is outlined in this transfiguration moment? And if I'm the disciples, the the few that get to be there in this moment, I am overwhelmed. This week I saw the greatest film, don't come at me on this, the greatest film of all time, James Cameron's Titanic, It's okay to laugh. In 3D, in the theater, because because he has to re-release it so he makes a little more money. Do you know what I'm saying? So every five to ten years or so, he re-releases it. And uh, the the dialogue is cheesy. Yes, that's true. Yes, it's three hours and 14 minutes. Yes, Jack and Rose didn't really exist. But that story captures me. Can I tell you how hard it is to cry with 3D glasses on? Because you're trying to wipe your eyes as the tears are, because I get so involved in the story of Jack and Rose. It's like the modern day Romeo and Juliet, you know? And when Jack, when he goes into the ocean at the end, I told Sophia last night, I was like, I'm so tempted to go see Titanic again, but it's three hours. You know, I have to buy popcorn. Uh, The good news is if I fall asleep, then, you know, I've seen it before. Uh, I have that film downloaded on every device I own so that I can watch it on a whim, and I do often, because I love that film. So watching it in 3D, which was, by the way, the first time I had seen it in 3D, (gasps) immersive experience. Immersive experience. That's how I picture this. Being totally immersed in the glory of God. Being totally immersed in the story of God and what God is doing in the world and has been doing in the world. And there's no doubt that if I was in that, in that experience, as I was one of the disciples, I would just stop in my tracks. In fact, some of the other tellings, this story exists in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Some of the other tellings also tell about how the disciples fell onto their face. They were so overwhelmed by the glory of God. Don't forget that when Moses goes up on the mountain and talks to God, his face is so overwhelmed by the glory that it glows. He has to wear a veil when he comes back down the mountain so that the glory would literally not kill the Israelites. That's what's happening here. So then it makes a little sense that Peter would say what he says, which is, Lord, if it's okay with you, let me build a dwelling place. Let me build a home and let's stay here a while. That's what he says. And it's not immediately, you know, responded to by Jesus, but he says, let me build a home. Let me build a shelter. Let me build a dwelling place. And this doesn't seem crazy because if we're experiencing the glory of God, do I want to stay there a little bit? Yeah, I want to be in that space. It's like when that worship song that you really love or that hymn that you really love, you know, comes on in the biggest organ and biggest choir or the best worship band in the world, and you're just like, can we, can we just keep going with this? Can we just keep going over and over again? Can we just sing that chorus one more time? This is like the modern worship thing, like, okay, let's sing the chorus again, right? That's, but that's kind of what happens. 
I want to talk specifically about something that's happening right now in our country um, that I've had a lot of questions about, and so we'll talk about it from here. There's a revival happening at Asbury University. Now, Asbury University is a Methodist-related school. Um, this is the undergrad. We should be clear that there's a, a seminary as well there. They are kind of separated by about a block or so. I've been there once or twice. But the, um, the university is where this, and the chapel in that university is where this is had. And basically the way this happened, I watched the service this week, is last Wednesday, not this past Wednesday, but the Wednesday before that, 10 or 11 days ago, the daily chapel service ended. I watched the end of the guy's sermon. He was talking about, um, you know, reflecting love in your life. It wasn't, it was good, but it wasn't particularly like, you know, something amazing. And, and all of a sudden, there just like some prayer broke out afterward. And then some people started um, staying around. They started singing and praying. And it started to gather energy, uh, as often happens on college campuses, where um, you start to see students gather one by one by one by one, and then more and more. You probably know about this because you saw it on TikTok or YouTube or Instagram or Facebook. You probably saw a lot of commentary on it this week because everyone has opinions on these types of things. But there is no doubt one thing, tens of thousands of people from literally around the world have been coming to Wilmore, Kentucky, of all places, to try to experience the love of God. I actually think Asbury's done a pretty good job of trying to control the narrative by not letting it be co-opted by the media as often is the case. Uh, I think they've done a really good job at trying to let it be what it is and trying to prioritize also the students whose chapel that is. I think they've done a good job at that. But a lot of questions have been asked. Some of, some of you have asked me. Uh, my students have asked a ton of it. Um, some of the questions that have come up is, is it legitimate? Is it biblical? Is this political posturing? Because we're living in a world where if you, don't, if you see something, it seems like political posturing, right? Um, or I, I, this also says something about our world. Is this a viral marketing thing? Which I am sure their enrollment will raise from this. I often think, I think that those questions are asking the wrong question. Is it biblical? I don't know. I'm sure you could find some evidence that it is, and I'm sure you could find some evidence that it's not. Is this legitimate? I don't know. I'm not there. Like, ask somebody who's there. I haven't experienced it. Don't ask me. Is this viral marketing? I sure hope not. I don't think so. It doesn't feel like it. Is this political posturing? I don't know. Our denomination is in a struggle right now, and Asbury is one of the universities we're not sure is going to stay United Methodist, and so we're not sure where that is. I don't know, but I, I will tell you this, that when I'm evaluating a revival or if I'm thinking about what's happening, what the Holy Spirit is doing in that moment, I'll tell you this, I do not want to put God in a box. So I'm not going to start by just assuming that it's bad because I sit on one side or another. I'm not just going to start by assuming it's good because I sit on one side or another. What I want to do is say, Holy Spirit, come, and then we'll just see where God takes us. Let's not put God in a box immediately. But asking those questions, I think, is asking the wrong question. Because what happens after Peter says, let me build a dwelling place, is that they go back down the mountain. Jesus does not allow Peter to build a home 
where the glory of God could just be on display and we would just stand there forever. What happens is that Jesus takes his disciples, says, hey, you've seen the story. You're a part of the story. Let's go back down the mountain, back into the mission that I came here for. Do you see what happened? It's not only that they get to experience the glory, but they're not going to stay there forever. In other words, don't put a roof over your head. Just move back down the mountain so that you might do the work that I've called you to do. So that's the question that I think I ask, is what happens next? Not, is this biblical? Is this legitimate? Can I evaluate this? Is this going to be on the right news channels? Like, that's not the question that I want to ask. What I want to ask is, what happens next? Are hearts and minds and lives changed so that something changes? That's the question I want to ask. This happened uh, a few times in history, and I don't have a ton of time, so I just want to talk about one of them. But in the Second Great Awakening, this is the second uh, movement of the Holy Spirit that many would talk to you in American Christian history about. Uh, This is around the beginning of the 1800s, let's say 1800 to 1840. If you're familiar with American history, you know what period of our time that is. Okay, and you know what came after that? If we ended at 1840-1850 time frame, you know what came after that, right? We got no war. But one of the leaders of this was a was a gifted preacher. His name is Charles Finney. He was a gifted preacher, and he uh, started preaching in these kind of street revivals, like had happened, you know, 50 to 60 years ago in the first Great Awakening. But he had. He was preaching heavily, trying to change hearts and lives, bring hearts and lives back to Jesus. But one of the cool things about Charles Finney is he was also an adamant abolitionist. It was because of his faith that he was an abolitionist. Not because of some, some political posturing. He was an abolitionist because he felt that God compelled him through the scriptures to fight for the freedom of African Americans. In fact, he was later the president of Oberlin Oberlin College. And at Oberlin College, it was one of the first universities in the 1800s to admit students regardless of gender or race. Because you'll remember that women were not allowed to go to school in most of our nation at the time. He was a leader of that. And there is testimonial that came after that for people who fought the cause of abolition to fight slavery, literally fights a couple of years later, for the cause of ending slavery in the South because of the preaching of Charles Finney. To me, that's the question we got to ask about revival. That's the, the question we got to ask about viewing the presence of God viewing the glory of God, seeing ourselves within the story, if we're going to evaluate it, the question becomes, what comes next, church? What comes next? That's my question for us this morning as we read the Transfiguration story. We're going to have an awesome morning of worship. We've had an awesome morning of worship. We're going to sing a little bit more. I hope God is stirring something in your heart and soul and mind. 
I hope God is stirring something within you. I hope God's going to change you from the inside out. I hope that that happens every single Sunday. But the question comes, not, not whether what we do here is legitimate or right or wrong. I mean, I hope that it is. I'm not saying that I don't, but that's not the main question. The main question is, what does our church do when we leave these doors? How do we behave? What do we focus on? Where do we put our energies? Where do we put our money? Where do we put our time? What comes next? That's our question. Amen? So that's, the, that's my prayer for you, that you would dig deep in your soul, find what God is stirring within you. What is God calling to me right now to do? What is God calling to me to take part in, to fight for, to prioritize what comes next in my life after my revival? Let's pray. God, you are holy and just, God. You are a good, good, good God. Remind us of your goodness, God, as we sing your praises. But then call us to something higher when we leave from this place. That we might come down off the mountain, having been changed, having seen ourselves in the story of the transfiguration. And that we might come and do something with that calling. We love you and we praise you, God. We ask that you continue with us in worship. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.